This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Child abuse is a serious problem, both within the United States and around the world. In 2012, Child Protective Service agencies estimated that approximately 9 out of 1,000 children in the U.S. were victims of child maltreatment, and this was felt to underestimate the true scope of the problem. A recent study by the CDC estimated that one in four children experience some form of maltreatment in their lifetimes. Today we're joined by Dr. Arnie Graff, a Mayo Clinic family physician and division chair of child abuse and pediatrics. Thank you for joining us today, Arnie. Thank you. Well, this is a serious problem, and do we know how common, how prevalent it really is? Most of the numbers that we look at are very conservative, but in estimates, about six to seven million children are affected on a yearly basis in the United States. It's about one to two percent of all kids in the country, and the estimates are that about four to seven children per day uh, on a regular basis are being affected in the United States. We know that we have about, of those kids, about 1,700 deaths that are actually attributed to child abuse and that are recognized on a yearly basis also. And we know there are risk factors, things that can increase it, but overall it's about a $585 billion cost to the United States on a yearly basis. Wow. And I estimate, I suspect, that there are a lot of unreported cases that nobody knows anything about. For a variety of reasons, there are, yes. Yeah. Well, let's talk about some specifics. Are there particular ages of children where abuse is more common? Well, the, the most common high-risk group is kids that are under one year of age. And, and again, that plays into just the nature of the child because of their increased demands and their inability to cooperate, which can lead to frustration in people. Vast majority of the physical abuse that we see is in kids that are under the age of three. And then the other types of abuse kind of vary across the board. But uh, neglect, again, being the most common in all age groups uh, is kind of seen from zero to 18. Okay, so neglect is considered a form of child abuse. It is. It's an act of omission as opposed to the other types of abuse that we talk about, which are acts of commission or something being done. So it's the lack of doing something for the kids. And neglect carries as significant risk long-term for development, growth, uh, behavior, psychological, as any of the other forms of child abuse. So it's it plays a very significant role, and we often talk about it as being the, the neglect of neglect because people see it as not a big thing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned some of the other types of child abuse. Which ones are seen most often? By far the most common is neglect. Mm -hmm. About 70% of all the reports that are filed in the United States, and that's pretty consistent from state to state, will be on neglect. About 18 to 25% have to do with physical abuse. Sexual abuse is about 8 to 10%. Emotional abuse uh, gets a very small number, but the reality is that emotional abuse is probably uh, at pr most prevalent because it's involved in all the types of abuse that we see. I imagine the identification or suspicion of child abuse falls on the primary care provider or emergency room physician. Is that, is that accurate? I think for the most part because that's where the majority of the kids are being seen. Anybody who touches kids, whether it's cardiology, orthopedics, anything, 
also plays a role in recognizing when kids come in and have something that, that's viewed as an injury. But the, the key people are the primary care people and urgent care in the ER. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, how does a health care provider assess a child for abuse? How do, we, how do we get a suspicion that this may be going on? So I think the first thing is we just, as primary care providers, need to recognize that it does exist in our communities because that's probably the biggest barrier is just not thinking that it occurs in my small town. And then I think anytime you see a child where there's an injury of some kind, there's a very basic way to look at it, and that is the history that's described for the cause of the injury should be consistent with what the injury looks like, and it should be consistent with the ability of the child. If those don't line up, then it means that we as primary care providers need to ask why. And I, and I would tell you that really our job is not to prove it's abuse, because I think that's a barrier. I think our job is to prove it's not abuse. So if the history and the injury don't line up, then my job is to say, is there a medical reason for what I'm looking at here? Is there an accident that was either witnessed or unwitnessed? Because again, toddlers tend to have a lot of accidents out of the same room where you're at. And if those things don't line up, then I have to be willing to say, I'm concerned this might be abuse. You have to, you have to be able to go that next step. Hmm. I know with our kids, we had one of our three who was much more accident prone than the other two. And uh, I know it always went through my mind every time we had to take our, uh, our child in, oh my gosh, they're going to think it's child abuse because this is the fourth time that they've uh, had some injury. But I suspect that happens. I'm sure there are people who worry about that. But uh. It's a huge barrier for families. Um, and, and, and I tell you, it's, I think it's even a bigger barrier for us as, as providers because uh, having practiced in a small town when I started out, you know everybody. You bump into everybody. And we want to believe that those people we know are good people and nice people. So we create these biases. And, uh, and there's also this other bias where we as providers are worried that everything we report is going to end up in prosecution, removal of the child, and people going to parents. And that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of these end up getting resources put into place to help families stay intact. Are there certain injuries that are more common that when we see we should think about child abuse? Well, there, are, there is a push nationally currently looking at what we call sentinel events. So in kids that are a couple weeks old or beyond, when we see in non-mobile children like a subconjunctival hemorrhage outside of the neonatal window, or if we see an oral injury like a, a frenula tear, or if we see a bruise on a non-mobile infant, that's considered a sentinel event. It carries a very high risk of being associated with physical abuse of an injury occurring. And uh, I think those are the biggest things that we, we need to be aware of. Now, part of the problem is, you think about when we do an exam, an oral exam on a three-month-old that comes in, we don't lift the lips. We put the tongue blade in. We look at the back of the throat. We look at the palate. So if we're consciously looking at kids and checking these things and recognizing what shouldn't be there, then we're going to be able to respond to them. Okay. How do we determine when parents have crossed the line between discipline and child abuse? Well, this is certainly the hotbed issue currently. Yeah. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics, their paper that they recently published, says it probably best. 
Discipline is designed to teach, help kids to learn to regulate, and to learn what's appropriate, and to see how adults respond. Anytime we use something that's either verbal or physical that causes harm or pain to the child, then we've gone beyond what discipline was intended to do. Now, the, the tough part of this is that depending on where you live, various states don't consider causing a bruise in your child as being abusive. In other states, it's considered assault. So I think recognizing what discipline is supposed to be and working with our parents, but understanding what, where you practice, what the requirements are, I think is really important. This may not be a fair question, but what about spanking? There are thousands of studies that have been done. And if you look at Dr. Gershoff and her work, there's no study that has indicated that spanking has any benefit. Now, years ago, there were one or two studies that associated spanking and talked about good behavior results. And most of my generation would probably say we all live through it and we, we seem to turn out okay. But the studies really support all the new studies that it really increases aggression in the kids and it, it raises the risk for domestic violence, aggression in, with classmates, things like that down the road. Not one paper has shown support that we should continue to advocate spanking. So is spanking still considered discipline rather than abuse? Well, it's still considered discipline because it's not, it, depending on the state you live in, it's not considered an assault. Okay. Are there risk factors in parents that contribute to child abuse or risk factors in children? They are both. In children, clearly the population of kids, like I said, under the age of two um, and even up to about age three tend to be a high risk group, very demanding, limited ability to respond and cooperate. Uh, we have lots more children now with chronic diseases than we ever had 35 years ago. So increased stress in the family, emotionally, financially, plays a big role. We have kids with a lot more diagnosed behavior disorders nowadays and kids who are very impulsive or very aggressive. And so it, that population of kids is very high risk. For adults, um, people who have been abused um, or in a domestic violent relationship or there's domestic violence in the home, there clearly is a much greater risk with that. Even pet violence in the home has been, again, a concern for other types of violence occurring. Drugs, I, I would tell you 30% of all the, the kids I see now, um, there's some form of either drug during pregnancy or drug in the home association. So, and different type of drugs like methamphetamines where there can be more aggressiveness behavior puts the kids at greater risk for physical abuse. Mental health, parents that are not getting care um, for their mental health are gonna be more prone. And, um, and, and the classic has always been a non-biologic caregiver in the house. If it's not your child, the potential is there for you might be more uh, or have less of a nice response to the child just because it's not your, your birth child. Mm -hmm. How about birth order? I, I, I wonder, is it more common in firstborns where you know, they get home, the parents say, wow, this isn't what I expected, uh, crying all the time, uh, not getting any sleep, high stress, have no idea what to expect. Is, there, is, that a, is that an issue? I'm not sure that there's studies that have clearly shown firstborn versus the other, but in general, first child is always more stressful. Um, everybody tells us how to raise our children, yeah. but 
what to do with the child who we used to describe as a colicky baby crying from noon till two in the morning for three weeks straight uh, is a challenge for anybody. So firstborn child, lots of things to learn. Um, I don't think we have the same parenting like we did 30 years ago where grandpa and grandma and uncle and aunts were all around to help offer ideas. People are more isolated. I think so it puts them at greater risk with that first newborn experience. Sure, yeah. What about the uh, specific characteristics of the parents, uh, male versus female? Any differences there? Well, actually, if you look at the numbers, there are more women than there are men overall with child abuse. But I think that reflects, again, more neglect-type problems, a lot of single-parent families that are women. If you look at physical abuse uh, or sexual abuse, again, males tend to be at a higher rate of the offenders, although our female numbers are starting to increase. And physical abuse can be men or women, depending, again, who the caregiver in the house is and how they're related to the child. And I think you mentioned that if you were abused as a child, you are more likely to be an abuser in the future? There's about a one in three chance. But, you know, again, nowadays everybody is looking at ACEs. Uh, You really have to look at um, the type of abuse, the frequency, how egregious it was, who did it, was someone close to you, Um, Were there safety factors? Did you get trauma-focused therapy? If the kids have all these supportive factors, they have a much better chance of turning out very good, normal, and actually very good parents. If you don't have those factors, the likelihood is you've been traumatized emotionally, and how your behavior is going to be is it may not necessarily be right. Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, let's get down to specifics. Let's say we are in a primary care practice and we see a young child where we suspect he or she is a victim of abuse. What is our responsibility and what do we do next? Well, I think if you have an injury and you're clearly concerned, the first question you have to ask yourself is whether or not you're able to do the evaluation as an outpatient or an inpatient. And the outpatient, both of those have to carry a safety factor. If it's 9.30 in the morning, the likelihood of getting your tests done in a controlled environment is much easier. Otherwise, you simply have to say the hospital is the only way to go. Second is when you recognize that, first you have to recognize that in Minnesota, for instance, it's not if you prove abuse, it's if you suspect it. So if I suspect it, first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to outline in my mind what I need to do for tests immediately. I'm going to call the county, even though we file a suspected abuse report, you really need to call and talk to them. And I'm going to outline to them why I'm concerned and what I think needs to be done. And talk with them about what the safety plan is going to be, which oftentimes is going to be end up being in the hospital, at least until the testing is done. When I've done that, um, I'm going to get some tests. And then I think I think very important for us to remember is if this is an injury that was inflicted, I don't know who did it. And I shouldn't presume that mom or dad did this. So when I go back in and talk to the parents, I say to them, I'm a mandated reporter, and your child has an injury that's very concerning to me, and I'm worried that someone may have hurt your child. And I think we need to do these tests in order to make sure it's not something medical, even though in the history there's nothing to support that, And I think we need to contact the county and get them involved, and I'm going to do that. And I think that's the starting point. And then, of course, documenting very clearly what you saw, why you're concerned, 
uh, your response and interaction with the parents and CPS. I think you need to really document, well, I called the county, the county said to do this, and, and outline what you were going to do. Mm-hmm. And as health care providers, we are obligated to report these instances, even when, in, when we suspect them, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Let's take it a step before that. What if we see a child where we feel that they are at increased risk of abuse? Is there anything we can do about that? I think that's a great question. I, I think that's how we'll get ahead of this, at least to some extent. I think we all wish we had more time in our clinic practices so we could sit and talk more. But I think when we recognize something, for instance, a child in the room and one of the parents is upset and angry and, and being aggressive towards the child, I think that's an opportunity to say we just need to sit down and have a conversation. Mayo Clinic is part of a program right now to talk. It's called No Hit. And it's a program that's rolling out into the, to next year here. But it's talking about recognizing whether it's our secretaries at the clinic site or it's the nurse, or it's the provider recognizing something inappropriate that could escalate into something more serious, interrupting that cycle, and providing resources for the family. So if we can get ahead of it, maybe we'll be able to stop this. Mm -hmm. What are the important things that we should document in our clinical record when we suspect abuse? Well, I think document the injury and explain what you saw uh, you don't just say, gee, the child has a bruise on his chest. We talk about uh, this is a two-centimeter purple bruise overlying the ribs, no swelling, no tenderness, and we talk about the rest of the body being normal. So we want to really, really outline what we're seeing and actually take a photograph and make it part of the chart. And I think, again, we want to document that there's no medical uh, uh, concern in the family history or the child's history. Um, and then document what the physical exam otherwise showed and then uh, what our tests show and what our plan's going to be. But I think it's, again, really important that we document uh, that we've talked to the county and what the county's response was because we need to have something that shows that, again, the provider's done their, done their duty, and I don't want them getting in trouble. Yeah. Finally, let's talk about what happens to these children who have been abused. What what happens when they grow up uh, you mentioned they do increase risk of abusing other children but what hap- otherwise what happens to them so some of it depends on in part like i said before on who was violating uh, or offending on them and, and how egregious it was some of it depends a little bit on age so for instance a child under the age of four who is severely neglected doesn't receive consistent stimulating nurturing environment and consistently is having this inconsistency that by age four when our brain is hardwired for things like impulse control, memory, empathy, things like that, we're going to have a problem with our wiring. And so moving forward, that's going to be more of a challenge for that child, developmentally, behavior-wise. Kids who have done well and and the offense is later in life may have better skills for coping and doing well. In general, greater risks of suicide, greater risk of drug abuse, greater risk of problems with relationships, higher risk of uh, inappropriate sexual um, high-risk type activity. Um, Physical injuries can result in significant developmental delays or long-term problems and clearly behavior issues. I would tell you in talking with our colleagues in mental health field that for many of the kids we see 
um, they are labeled with ADD, ODD, ADHD. When you talk to our colleagues in mental health, they say, wait a minute, a lot of these kids are PTSD. And there's a reason none of them respond or they don't respond well to antipsychotics and ADHD meds and they get worse. It's because we're going down the wrong path. So mental health is significant potential in these kids. Yeah. And all of these are a potential unless it's a physical injury that results in a brain injury. Now, I know you're a pediatrician, and I think we're doing a better job of asking our adult patients whether they were abused as a child. If we identify somebody who says they were abused in childhood, is there effective treatment that they can undergo that may help them deal with some of their past? Even adults, I think, um, who have had some type of exposure in the past uh, can benefit from therapy. And many of them never had anything offered to them. So it's a wonderful opportunity to get them into one of our mental health providers, let them work with them so they can be a, have a better chance of being a better parent and not respond inappropriately, yes. We've been talking about child abuse with Dr. Arnie Graff, a Mayo Clinic family physician and division chair of child abuse and pediatrics. Arnie, thank you so much for giving your time to discuss this really important topic. Well, thank you for allowing us to be able to share this. Mayo Clinic conferences welcome physicians and healthcare providers from around the world. Learn from medical experts and network with colleagues at exciting destinations. Plan your next CME course by visiting ce.mayo.edu. Stay healthy and see you next week.